Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 9, The Rain on Her Grave. People liked having Abraham Lincoln near. His friend mentor Graham called Lincoln, quote, one of the most companionable persons you will ever see in this world. Dr. Jason Duncan, another one of his New Salem companions, said Lincoln had, quote, an approachable air common to young men who, like him, grew up on the Western frontiers. Throughout his life, people remarked on Lincoln's geniality, and in particular, his ability to talk until the fires died late in the evening. Yet, to some people, Lincoln often seemed oblivious to his company. William Herndon wrote in 1886 that Lincoln was, quote, a poor listener. He added, quote, He did not seek society, man or woman, for his or her own sake. He sought each in order to shoot off his stories. To Herndon, Lincoln was, quote, A sphinx sitting at the roadside, making no revelations of himself, his origins, his feelings, thoughts, or purposes to anyone. Herndon added, somewhat wistfully, quote, Probably he remains a mystery to me because I tried to penetrate the soul of the man, an essence, a thing, not to be penetrated by mortal man. Others who knew Lincoln felt he set himself apart. In his youth, Lincoln sometimes wandered off on his own, like his father. Lincoln's cousin, Dennis Hanks, thought he had a, quote, solitary nature. Joseph Gillespie, who met Lincoln during the Black Hawk War and remained a lifelong friend, went further. Gillespie said, quote, He was genial, but not very sociable. He did not seek company, but when he was in it, he was the most entertaining person I ever knew. Yet, even in a crowd, Lincoln could suddenly shift into profound loneliness. Joshua Shank, in his book Lincoln's Melancholy, quotes Jonathan Birch, an acquaintance of Lincoln's, who said Lincoln could often be seen holding forth, telling stories and laughing with a group of attorneys. Just an hour later, Birch said, Lincoln sat apart, his head down, his hat over his eyes, and his hands gripping his knees. Birch said, quote, No one ever thought of breaking the spell by speech. For by his moody silence and abstraction, he had thrown about him a barrier so dense and impenetrable, no one dared break through. So, how did a man who suffered such public agonies end up in the nasty world of politics? In his book Lincoln's Quest for Union, Charles Strozier argues that Lincoln's concern for the rule of law stemmed in part from his efforts to control his inner life and the self-destructive feelings within. Strozier wrote, quote, For Lincoln, the political analog of this private world of meanings was the stability and cohesion of the political process itself. His choice of career and his early political affinities reflected an abiding commitment to order and stability in the community. Some have speculated organizing voters was a way for Lincoln to organize his own psyche and to be seen without being seen. Strozier writes, quote, Lincoln's equilibrium seemed to hinge on the emotional supplies served up by both intimate and formalized encounters with others. In this sense, 
the irresistible appeal of politics was its potential for providing recognition and admiration. Lincoln's first session as a legislator at the end of 1834 was no psychodrama, nor did it offer many opportunities to be seen. Wearing a jean suit, Lincoln traveled about 100 miles from New Salem to the Illinois capital in Vandalia for the start of the legislative session on December 1st. Vandalia had about 800 residents clustered in about 100 buildings. The General Assembly met in a two-story red-brick building, the Senate on the top floor and the House on the bottom. The Speaker of the House presided over the chamber from a desk that was a board on four sticks. The building had gone up quickly and was less than impressive. The floors sagged and the walls bulged. Legislators, who sat three to a desk, sometimes had to move to avoid falling plaster. Vandalia tends to get a bad rap in Lincoln literature. It was in Paris. But it was eight times the size of New Salem and had a more diverse economy, including a bookstore and a jewelry shop. As in most corners of America, drinking was a common pastime. But there were intellectual offerings, too. As Michael Burlingame writes, quote, In the winter of 1838-1839, lectures were given at the State House by an officer in Napoleon's army and a visitor from McKendree College, among others. The topics included temperance, phrenology, and Prussian education. James Hall, a journalist in literature, promoted intellectual life in Vandalia, helping to found schools and lyceums. Parties, dances, and receptions enlivened society during sessions of the legislature. Lincoln was a freshman, but so were most other legislators that December. Only 19 of the 56 House members had served before. Most were Southern-born, like Lincoln, and most were farmers. The General Assembly at this point was controlled by Jackson men, and Lincoln was little more than a backbencher that first year. John Todd Stewart, who led the anti-Jackson forces in the House, later said that he, quote, traded off with Lincoln on certain votes. So Lincoln spent most of his first session watching the proceedings. The 25-year-old legislator answered most roll calls and voted on most bills. Lincoln also handled the sort of housekeeping bills freshman legislators often get saddled with. He helped draft legislation on the recovery of stray animals, and sponsored another bill on justices of the peace that passed the House, but not the Senate. When the session concluded in March, Lincoln returned to New Salem with at least $158 in his jean suit, and went back to surveying and delivering the mail. But he was about to see much of his income disappear. The notes from the Berry and Lincoln failure were coming in. Lincoln lost a lawsuit over the debts at the end of 1834, which cost him many of his personal possessions, including his surveying equipment. James Short, one of his neighbors, paid $120 for the equipment when it came up for auction, then turned it over to Lincoln, unencumbered. Amid all this, Lincoln was mulling a career change. He had always shown some interest in the courts. He attended Bowling Green's proceedings in New Salem and served as a juror and a witness. He drafted legal documents for New Salemites, and according to historian Michael Burlingame, once argued a case before a justice of the peace on behalf of a pregnant woman whose lover would not marry her. Lincoln got a $100 judgment for his client. For a person with intense ambitions and painful memories of poverty and the disrespected engendered, 
the law could provide an avenue for fiscal security and social standing. In his 1860 campaign biography, Lincoln said Stewart encouraged him to pursue the law during a conversation in the 1834 campaign. After the election, Lincoln wrote, he borrowed books of Stewart, took them home with him, and went at it in good earnest. There was no formal licensing process for attorneys in Illinois. The only technical requirement to practice law was a certification of good character from a court. But there were many informal barriers. Lawyers were expected to have a solid education before beginning practice. Brian Dirk, in his book Lincoln the Lawyer, writes, quote, Although there was no formal professional standard for a pre-law education, most American attorneys agreed that no young man should seek entrance to the bar without a few years of intellectual preparation, or, better yet, a college degree. But Lincoln had nothing. Moreover, as Dirk writes, the certification from a court was not trivial. It signaled acceptance by the wider legal community. Dirk writes, quote, What did matter, what pushed Lincoln across the threshold of the legal profession, was not a modern-style piece of paper, a license he could hang and frame on his wall, backed by a professional legal hierarchy. It was, rather, the informal approval of other lawyers. Not lawyers organized as a vast profession, but rather lawyers as individuals who met Lincoln face-to-face and oriented their judgments according to their own lights. In other words, Lincoln, with almost no formal education, had to earn respect. Lincoln was also unusual in that he pursued the law on his own. As he wrote in 1860, quote, he studied with nobody. Now, Lincoln traveled to see Stewart in Springfield and borrow books, and the older man may have provided some guidance. For the most part, though, Lincoln was self-directed, studying his law books in the spring and summer of 1835 in the post office, by fireplaces, and sometimes in the woods surrounding New Salem. Russell Godby said he once saw Lincoln reading a book while sitting on a woodpile. Godby asked Lincoln, quote, Abe, what are you studying? Law, replied Abe. The older man replied, Great God Almighty! This was no leisurely course of study. Lincoln's basic text was William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, which he may have obtained at an estate sale. Dirk quotes the historian Daniel Borstein calling the book a, quote, do-it-yourself guide to becoming a lawyer. It had a conservative, somewhat anti-enlightenment cast, but it was written clearly and took an orderly march through the various elements of the law. Lincoln may have found his own dim but patient evaluation of individuals reflected by the British jurist, who wrote, quote, The only true and natural foundations of society are the wants and the fears of individuals. Not that we can believe, with some theoretical writers, that there ever was a time when there was no such thing as society, either natural or civil, and that, from the impulse of reason and through a sense of their wants and weaknesses, individuals met together in a large plain entered into an original contract, and chose the tallest roan present to be their governor. Orderly as it was, the commentaries took a long time to finish. Some lawyers felt the act of reading Blackstone provided a certain mental discipline that would be valuable in the courtroom. But Lincoln had to read other books as well. Based on later advice he gave on legal education, 
Lincoln may have studied a book by Joseph Chitty called Treatise on Pleading and Parties to Actions, known as Chitty's Pleadings, which provided guidance on how to draft briefs for different situations. It was, in effect, a giant workbook. Lincoln may have also read a work by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story on equity. At the time, equity was a branch of the law that tried to address legal problems where statutes and common law were either in conflict or silent. As Story wrote, quote, Every system of laws must necessarily be defective, and cases must occur to which the antecedent rules cannot be applied without injustice or to which they cannot be applied at all. Story's work is filled with Latin quotations that must have baffled Lincoln, who never learned a foreign language. But the work was considered essential on the subject. Lincoln was proud of teaching himself law. When his son Robert told him he wanted to go to Harvard Law School, Lincoln replied, quote, If you do, you should learn more than I did, but you will never have so good a time. The first part of that statement is telling. Both William Herndon and David Davis, a judge who later traveled the circuit with Lincoln, said he was weak on the technical rules of the law. Davis said, quote, A child could conduct the simple and technical rules, the means and mode of getting at justice, better than Lincoln. The law has its own rules, and a student could get at them better than Lincoln. Lincoln's later law partner, Stephen Logan, would try to correct some of these deficiencies, but many would stick with him. Lincoln was doing all this studying while surveying, delivering mail, and trying to keep pace with his debts. It was a brutal regimen, and some of Lincoln's neighbors said this was the first time they remembered the young man becoming asocial. Robert Rutledge said that Lincoln, quote, became wholly engrossed in the study of law. His friend Henry McHenry said Lincoln studied so hard he, quote, became emaciated, and his best friends were afraid he would craze himself. Health was always a concern on the frontier. Americans of the 1830s traveled more than their ancestors and got exposed to a greater variety of illnesses. The historian Daniel Walker Howe writes that infectious diseases, quote, spread more rapidly than in earlier years. He goes on to say, quote, The health of the nation deteriorated during the first half of the 19th century. Between 1815 and 1845, the average height of native-born white males dropped from 173 to 171.6 centimeters. Life expectancy at age 10 from 52 years to 47 years. Increasing democracy and economic productivity, even rising real wages, did not offset the spread of contagious diseases, which stunted the growth of young people even if they survived. Economic development outran medical science, and those who lived through this era paid a real physical price. The historian James Davis, in his book Frontier, Illinois, notes that rivers in the state could breed disease. He wrote, quote, Accounts are nearly unanimous in indicating that river bottoms and other low-lying dam places were sources of sickness and death, especially during summer. This was thought to be especially true after rains on hot summer days, and some blamed it on decaying vegetable matter. The sickly time began in August and ran into October. Often half to two-thirds of annual deaths occurred during these three months. 
Sometime in late July or early August of 1835, Anne Rutledge, the daughter of James Rutledge, the co-founder of New Salem, came down with something that the residents knew as brain fever. Most historians believe it was typhoid contracted from a polluted water supply. Anne was 22 years old at the time, four years Lincoln's junior. He probably met her when boarding with the Rutledges during his first years in New Salem. Most people remembered Anne Rutledge as a kind and intelligent young woman. Her brother Robert called her the brightest member of their family. She had blue eyes and auburn hair and dressed plainly. Mentor Graham, who taught her for a time, said Anne had, quote, outlines beautiful. At the time of her illness, Anne kept house for her father, and Lincoln, according to New Salemites, was a frequent visitor at the Rutledge home. As this young woman burned in the hot prairie sun and suffered from intense stomach pains, she called for Lincoln, who visited Anne before her death on August 25, 1835. Some days afterward, Lincoln collapsed. Elizabeth Abel, a friend of Lincoln's, said, quote, He made a remark one day that he could not bear the idea of its raining on her grave. That was the time the community said he was crazy. He was not crazy, but he was very desponding a long time. Some of Lincoln's friends began fearing for his life. Henry McHenry said, quote, He seemed quite changed. He seemed retired and loved solitude. He seemed wrapped in profound thought, indifferent to transpiring events, had but little to say, but would take his gun and wander off in the woods by himself, away from the association of even those he esteemed. This gloom seemed to deepen for some time, so as to give anxiety to his friends in regard to his mind. The young man's breakdown was so profound that some New Salemites suspected Lincoln and Rutledge were romantically involved. Decades later, many of Lincoln's friends claimed Anne and Abraham were engaged. John Hill, the New Salem merchant Samuel Hill's son, published the first known account of the Rutledge relationship in a newspaper in 1862. But it didn't come to national attention until after Lincoln's death, when William Herndon learned about it from Hill and other former New Salemites. He then discussed it in a series of well-publicized lectures in 1865 and 1866. Herndon, though, used the tale as a measurement of the happiness in Lincoln's marriage to Mary Lincoln, which, in Herndon's mind, was non-existent. Needless to say, neither Lincoln's widow nor his eldest son agreed with this conclusion. Accordingly, the Ann Rutledge story has always divided scholars. Stepping gingerly into the crossfire, here are the outlines of the evidence. The Rutledge family and most of Lincoln's neighbors in New Salem believed Ann and Abraham planned to marry. Mentor Graham claimed that Lincoln told him that they were engaged, and said Rutledge, quote, intimated to me the same. But, in the traditional telling of the story, Anne and Abraham had to keep it secret. When Anne was 17, she became engaged to a man named John McNeil, a partner in Samuel Hill's store who accumulated a small fortune as a merchant. Lincoln knew Anne's fiancé, and he may have helped Lincoln write his campaign statement in 1832. But McNeil was a pseudonym. His real name was John McNamara, and he told Anne he changed it because his father ran into business difficulties in his hometown back east. McNamara told Anne he wanted to restore his family fortunes without alerting them to his efforts. 
1832, he returned to his father, but promised Anne he would come back. But when McNamara reached his family, he discovered his father was ill and stayed three years to sort out the family affairs. McNamara did return to Sangamon County, though only after Anne Rutledge's death. He later told Herndon that he went to New York to help his father, but only said, quote, Circumstances beyond my control detained him. McNamara spoke warmly of Anne. He called her, quote, a gentle, amiable maiden without any of the airs of your city bells. But he later told Herndon that, at the time, neither he nor Lincoln could enter what he called, quote, entangling alliances. McNamara was about 12 years older than Anne, and his later wife said, quote, there was no more poetry or sentiment in him than in the multiplication table. As Robert Rutledge told it, Anne planned to break her engagement to McNamara when he returned so that she could marry Lincoln. Years later, Isaac Cogdall, a friend of Lincoln's, said that before Lincoln left for the White House, he asked him about Anne Rutledge. Cogdall said Lincoln told him that, quote, I loved the woman dearly and sacredly. I did honestly and truly love the girl and think often, often of her now. This is a touching story, but it has problems. Lincoln never wrote of Anne Rutledge, and Cogdell aside, no one, not even Lincoln's close friend Joshua Speed, remembered him ever mentioning Aunt Rutledge after he left New Salem. This does not in itself discredit the story. Lincoln, after all, barely spoke of the deaths of his mother and his sister. But where we know something of Lincoln's relationship with Nancy Lincoln, and a good bit more about his relationship with Sarah Lincoln Grigsby, almost no one in New Salem could remember Lincoln and Rutledge courting, or had stories of them interacting. Other sources are considered suspect. Mentor Graham, for example, exaggerated his role in Lincoln's education. Cogdall's testimony, the strongest evidence for the Rutledge story, has been subjected to tests that show his account includes words Lincoln hardly ever used. In addition, a romantic pursuit like this doesn't really match most people's descriptions of the young Lincoln, who is terribly awkward around young, single women. He seems to have been very friendly with girls he went to school with, and always seemed to be easy and charming with older married women. But with single women his age, he stumbled. His stepmother, Sarah Bush Lincoln, said, quote, Abe was not very fond of girls, as he seemed to me, an opinion Dennis Hanks shared. Nathaniel Branson, who knew Lincoln after he had established himself in Springfield, said Lincoln, quote, didn't go to see the girls much. He didn't appear bashful, but it seemed as if he cared but little for them. If Lincoln felt comfortable with Anne, it may have been because her engagement made it easier for him. Perhaps that ease led to something deeper. But hard evidence is lacking. Few historians doubt that Lincoln mourned Rutledge's death. But her demise may have been one of many factors in his collapse, rather than the single cause. He was certainly overworked and burdened with debt. Joshua Schenck writes that Lincoln's comment about the rain on her grave could have been more than poetic expression. He writes, quote, Major depression, in people who are vulnerable to it, can be set off by all manner of circumstances. What would appear to a non-depressed person to be an ordinary or insignificant stimulus can, 
through a depressive's eyes, look rather profound. And Schenck quotes Charles Bukowski, quote, It's not the large things that send a man to the madhouse. No, it's a continuing series of small tragedies, a shoelace that snaps with no time left. And then Schenck continues, In this light, it's worth noting that, according to reminiscences, the pivotal moment for Lincoln wasn't Rutledge's death, but the heavy weather that followed. After his breakdown, Lincoln's friends rallied to him. His mentor Bowling Green took him in and helped restore Lincoln's spirits. By mid-September, Lincoln returned to surveying in the post office and had plunged back into his legal studies. But from this point on, people talked about an aura of gloom around Lincoln. William Herndon wrote that there were times when Lincoln would appear in their office looking so miserable that Herndon would leave and pull the curtain across the door, feeling pity for, quote, this unfortunate and miserable man. Lincoln told Robert Wilson, who campaigned with him in the election of 1836, that he never carried a pocket knife. James Matheny said that the gloom, quote, grew on him. He had two sentiments. One was to stick his head in a hollow log and see no one, and the other was to climb up, in other words, to pursue his ambitions. Lincoln's other response was humor. Storytelling was always a central part of Lincoln's life, but after this point, it took on a medicinal aspect. Wilson said Lincoln told him, quote, that although he appeared to enjoy life rapturously, still he was the victim of terrible melancholy. He saw company and indulged in fun and hilarity without restraint or stint as to time. Lincoln called these stories, quote, the vents of my moods and gloom. Herndon said he had to be careful about reading aloud in the office because almost anything reminded Lincoln of a story. Lincoln wrote, quote, The thing once suggested there would be an end of your reading. Close the book you must. You couldn't help it. He would tell one story and that would suggest another. And so the day would roll by pleasant or unpleasant to you. He had no holdup in this particular. Lincoln's humor embraced everything from puns and wry observations to ethnic and scatological humor. Herndon claimed that Lincoln only used dirty jokes to make a point, but it's hard to see the greater instructional purpose of a note Lincoln once gave to a Springfield bailiff that told a story of a man thrown into a, quote, great tau curd. The Spoonerisms continue. He said about Braydake, he came to himself, ran home, seized up a stick of wood, and split the axe to make a light, rushed into the house, and found the door sick abed, and his wife standing open. But thank goodness she is getting right hat and farty again. In another story, an attorney in a courtroom where Lincoln was working split his pants. His colleagues passed a note around to raise money to replace the clothes. Lincoln signed the paper with, quote, I can contribute nothing to the end in view. Schenck writes these jokes and stories were how Lincoln connected with others. He writes, quote, Withdrawal is an essential feature of depression, and once withdrawn, a person can grow more steadily awkward in company. Many chronic depressives find simple small talk to be a Herculean challenge. By his late 30s and early 40s, Lincoln frequently withdrew into spells of gloom, but he had a surefire method to socialize when he wanted to. Charles Strozier, a psychoanalyst, wrote that humor, quote, provided a zest that kept his depression at bay. He adds, quote, humor never completely eliminated his depression. He was gloomy 
to the end. But it helped ease his radical shifts in mood and gave him confidence that he need not disintegrate in his depression. Thus, at the start of analysis, a gloomy patient may wrap himself in a shroud of desperate isolation to avoid experiencing the pulls of the transference. Years later, at the termination of analysis, the same patient might still become depressed. But if his analysis has worked out tolerably well, he will be able to shift easily into other moods and see some humor in his earlier fears. But in 1835, Lincoln was only beginning the difficult process of confronting his illness. His humor had a sharp and nasty edge throughout his time in the General Assembly, and for the rest of the decade, his moods would swing wildly, from exuberance to hostility, especially when dealing with political enemies. He struggled to make a professional mark and to navigate the rapids of human intimacy. In short, Lincoln was a young person, still in the process of putting himself together. And the solitary man would struggle to climb out of his emotional pits by connecting with others in the public arena and more private spheres, his humor serving as the bridge and an escape. Next time, we'll return to the Illinois General Assembly and see Lincoln make his first real mark as a member of that group. We'll also see Lincoln bid farewell to New Salem and make his home in the neighboring city of Springfield. <laughs>